Hey, this is Robert Mason, the Ringer NFL Show. Even though the Super Bowl is over, free agency, the combine, and the draft are all right around the corner, and the Ringer NFL Show will have you covered, bringing everything you need to know. You can subscribe to the Ringer NFL Show at iTunes.com slash The Ringer or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, he likes Randy Levine even less than Dylan Batonsis does. It's Michael Bauman. Hi, Michael. Yeah, I think that that pretty much covers our Randy Levine, <laughs> Dylan Batonsis banter section, because Randy Levine is a butthole. Um, And that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Yeah, I don't think you'll find too many dissenting opinions out there. No. So... Real quick, I want to I want to resurrect the game from last week. Ooh, and okay. This week it's college baseball player or make and model of 20th century European automobile or Star <laughs> Wars expanded universe character. All right, I'll miss Nicolas Cage character, but go ahead. All right. First up, Austin Somerset. Austin Somerset, baseball player. Incorrect. Ah. It is a 1950s British family sedan. Really? So we're not talking about Aston as in Aston Martin here? No, it's Austin. It's it's a completely different company. All right, if you say so. That I only heard of because <laughs> I watch Top Gear a lot. Um, second, uh, Sire Yanka. Ooh, baseball? That's Star Wars Expanded Universe. He was ah. a Star Destroyer captain in the X-Wing series about the 95th most important character <laughs> in that series. And that's how deep I thought I had to go to get one you wouldn't recognize off the bat. Yeah, I read those books, but maybe I banished them from my mind when they were decanonized and designated as legends. Yeah. All right. Jax Groshans. <laughs> It'd be harder to come up with a more Star Wars expanded universe name than Jax, but I don't think you'd double up on EU. So I'm going to go with baseball. It is baseball. Catcher for Kansas, All right. who I picked because Jax is an extremely Star Wars expanded universe. <laughs> All right. Next one, Gaz Chaika. Gaz Chaika. Not sure where to go with that one, so I'll default back to baseball. Nope. That is a mid to late 20th century Soviet luxury automobile. Ah, of course. Good old Gaz Chaika. All right. Last one, Tariq Skubal. <laughs> Never heard the name, but cars and Star Wars characters have outnumbered baseball players so far, so I'm going to go with baseball. He is a pitcher for Seattle University, so two out of five. And you sniffed out the baseball players, if only by parsing the order in which I would put them. <laughs> yeah, this has become more about figuring out the way your mind works than anything else. So we are approaching the point where there will be actual baseball games to discuss, but we're not quite there yet. So we've got a couple of good guests lined up. Later in this episode, we'll be talking to Doug Latta, a hitting coach. He is the man responsible for reinventing Justin Turner, turning him into a power guy. And he's an advocate for the oddly unconventional idea of swinging up and trying to hit the ball in the air, which is something that has met a lot of resistance inside baseball. So he's going to talk to us about the mechanics behind that and why it hasn't been embraced sooner. Yeah. One of the reasons that Doug Latta was in the news recently mm-hmm. was the Fangraphs article uh, that Travis Sawchick wrote about him. And I think it's yeah. just from a, an editorial standpoint, I think it's cool that Travis is, is working at Fangraphs now so they can have these sort of reported 
you know, the guest on the first episode of this podcast that you and I did. Yeah, it's true. So, you know, I'm very happy for Travis, but also for Fangraphs that the site can have Doug Latta instead of what they usually do, which is lug data. <laughs> okay, I'll give that one to you. That's okay. pretty good. Please don't, please don't edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> stays in. Okay. All right. But first, we're going to talk to a major league reliever. Another left-handed relief pitcher. This is the only kind of person we have on the podcast. <laughs> it's left-handed relief pitchers. I know. Well, we might switch things up and have a right-handed reliever on next week's show, actually. It's definitely a relief pitcher podcast, but they're fun players to talk to. They're the forgotten guys of baseball. They have some interesting stories to tell. So last week, we were talking to Twins pitcher Glenn Perkins, and he was talking about how he sort of accidentally stumbled on the strategy of throwing pitches high in the zone which worked well for him because he was a high-spin pitcher, but he didn't know that at the time. And he was saying that in the past, teams and players have made discoveries almost by accident, and then they just did what worked. And that in this new data-driven age, we would see teams and players make plans using the information that's available and then implement those plans and prosper. And the player we are going to talk to now is, I think, a good example of that. He's Dodgers reliever Grant Dayton. And as Fangraphs writer Paul Swyden pointed out recently, he has one of the 10 best statistical projections for any relief pitcher this year. His projected wins above replacement is sandwiched right between Ken Giles's and Craig Kimbrell's, which gives you some sense of how good his performance has been. He is coming off a very successful and maybe not surprising to Grant Dayton, but perhaps surprising to most people, rookie season. And he is down in Arizona with the Dodgers in spring training, where he reported last week. Hey, Grant. Hey, how are you? Okay, so we're going to ask you about your stuff. We're going to ask you about your fastball, which seems like a fascinating pitch. But before that, I just want to ask about the trajectory of 2016, because you kind of came out of nowhere for a lot of people, I think. And I'm wondering whether that was true for you, too. Obviously, you'd, you'd had a lot of success in the minors, but you'd been in AAA for a few years. You hadn't gotten that call yet, and you were heading for your 29th birthday. And then before right. you know it, you're up with the Dodgers. You're putting up great stats still, and you're in a pennant race, and you're pitching in the playoffs. Was it all surprising to you how quickly it came together, or were you surprised that it took as long as it did? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. I thought that, you know, I've had a long minor league career. I felt that, you know, I've always done well. I've always liked my arm and, and whatnot. But uh, as you see, as what was exposed, I throw a lot of fastballs. And I think maybe that's what held the Marlins back. You know, I was with the Marlins for five years. That's, I think that's what held them back is maybe they didn't think it would play in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. You know, I came over to the Dodgers and had success. I think that's why they wanted me in the first place is because they liked my fastball. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as soon as the success started and a little bit of the right place and the right time kind of thing going on because we had so many injuries and the, the bullpen was getting used quite a bit. So they needed a little bit of relief up there. They gave me a shot. And the rest is history. I, I was able to do well. And, you know, so they started pushing my role pretty quick. Libertor got hurt. So you know, he was the late inning lefty and I was uh, able to help in that aspect. And, you know, I guess it's pretty easy to see what happened after that. And we know most of the ways that a player's life changes from college to the minor leagues to the major leagues. But what was the difference in terms of feeling like you were under a microscope or the fan scrutiny or the media scrutiny? Because, you know, you went from a fairly anonymous minor league pitcher to pitching right. in an elimination game for the Dodgers. It doesn't get much more high profile than that. 
Yeah, it, it was a little tough. I I knew that I was under a microscope. I knew that there was a lot of people watching. And being a reliever, it can be rewarding. But I think that when you do your job, it's expected. You know, you go in there and you throw up a zero on the board and you come out and nobody really noticed what happened. But if you go out there and give up some runs, and it, you know, it's easy to be hated. Maybe hate's a strong word, but yeah, it can feel that way. Uh, so I guess, and I've always been good at ignoring it, but I guess I needed to learn a little bit more how to ignore the negativity that can come from different places out there. But for the most part, I think, especially because I was having a good year, I think that um, there wasn't too much to ignore. So that I had that going for me. I think there, you know, obviously game five of the NLDS, I gave up a pretty big home run, which put the Nationals back in the game significantly. So that was tough. But that being said, somebody pointed out to me, you know what, if it wasn't for that, then Kinley wouldn't have gone those, what is like almost three innings and Kershaw getting a save. That was spectacular to watch. So you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you struck out 91 guys over 52 innings across AA and AAA last year, which seems like one of those numbers has to be a typo, but it's not. That's just your regular yeah. old 16 strikeouts per nine. So you've yeah. always missed bats and put up numbers in the minors, but that was a lot even for you. So was there anything different about you last season? Just a little bit. I changed my approach against hitters a little bit. I used my fastball more so as an out pitch. I think I just used it more in general. You know, when I was with other teams, I felt like I needed to throw more off speed because that's kind of a conventional way of pitching. And I felt like I needed to throw at the bottom of the zone because that's conventional pitching. But um, I've always known in the back of my head, that's not how my stuff plays. So the Dodgers allowed me to fine tune that to how, and they helped me, you know, realize what was going on, help me fine tune what or who I am as a pitcher and what can make me successful. So obviously I'm, I'll always, until my career is over, want better off speed. But, you know, I don't, I guess I don't need to focus on that as hard as I used to. And um, mm-hmm. I think once I stopped focusing on the off speed so much, it made my fastball a little better. And I had that going for me. I had the, um, just the catchers on the same page and the pitching coaches helping me to, or showing me how to, you know, use my fastball against hitters. And I don't think I changed too much, but I guess the numbers might say I did but I, I really don't feel like I did. That's interesting because that seems like it's becoming more of a trend maybe that if a pitcher has a really good pitch, he should just use it. And <laughs> You know, even if traditionally you yep. you might have been encouraged to mix your pitches more, I mean, your your teammate Rich Hill is maybe a good example of that. If he has a great curveball, he can throw it right. 50% of the time and he still gets guys out and people still swing and miss. So so why not? And, and as a reliever, you maybe even have more freedom to – throw one pitch most of the time because guys aren't seeing you twice or three times in a game and you were throwing that thing close to 85 percent of the time late in the season and and in the playoffs so i guess there's really no limit almost to to how much you can do that yeah i mean you know obviously the hitters are very very good so there has to be something in the back of their heads that i can throw besides the fastball yeah but if it's hard to hit it's hard to hit so Mm -hmm. you know if i give them my best fastball and locate it well it's got to be located but uh, i guess that's that's the game plan for me i've been working on a slider this last off season and i'm gonna bring it into camp and hopefully hopefully uh, that'll 
start playing, you know, once I start throwing the hitters, I'll see how it really is. But I feel like that might be another weapon for me this year. So I guess I'll wait, have to wait and see. But, you know, the whole a pitcher can throw one pitch, well, yes and no, but why why give them your second or third best pitch when your first is working, you know? Mm-hmm. If, you know, I think baseball is a game of adjustments for a pitcher and a hitter. So, you know, if they make the adjustment to it, then, you know, I have to adjust. But I, you see what I'm saying? So, yeah, I just I think that throwing other stuff would be pointless right now, at least. So what your fastball does when you throw it up in the zone, if you're locating it well, it's it's spinning, it's not dropping. It's not the kind of pitch that to bring up another reliever who sort of jumped on the scene in the past couple of years. You know, you're not like Sam Dyson, who's getting ground balls with the sinker. You're getting a lot of pop-ups, right. a lot of swing and misses. That's something that we're seeing pitchers going to a lot more uh, over the past couple of years as opposed to the try-to-get-ground-balls model, that pop-ups are another kind of weak contact that you can actually go out and try to induce. Is that intentional for you? Is that just something that you you just spot your fastball better high or you just notice you were getting better results up there? You know, how much of, of that data are you bringing into your approach? I think you hit it right on. I think that um, the data can help us realize who we are as pitchers. So, you know, I played with Sam Dyson. He's got a very good sinker. It's hard to hit. He's going to get a lot of ground balls. He knew that. And that's what conventional pitching tells us to do, bottom of the zone, get ground balls. So he didn't really have to go away from the conventional pitching. Me, on the other hand, if I throw the ball down in the zone, two things tend to happen. Either they take it because it looks like it was going to be lower than it was, or they swing and, and hit it pretty hard. <laughs> hmm. And I've, I've always known that in the back of my head, but when your boss is telling you to do something, you usually do it, right? So they tell me <laughs> to throw down the zone, I throw down the zone. Well, I guess um, the Dodgers have, have an approach to say, hey, what are you good at? And let's do it the best we can. So they allowed me to be who I was and they took the data and they knew all the numbers. I got to be honest, I don't know the numbers as well as they do as far as how I spin the ball and how much my ball drops, but they said, Hey, throw the ball up in the zone and you'll get pop-ups and you'll get swing misses. So I started doing that and you know, that's how it worked. How much do you find yourself sort of thinking along with the hitter, you know, trying to anticipate what a hitter is doing? Cause it's been a while since you've hit at any kind of competitive level. So are you just like, do you sort of feel what you're doing to a hitter when you're going fastball high and then breaking ball low, changing eye level, or is it just something, you just know this works and you don't really perceive what they're seeing when the ball comes out of your hand. Well, I think that, that even though I haven't hit in a long time, I can imagine, I know what I'm trying to do. So if I'm trying to throw fastballs high, I want my curveball or now slider to look, you know, like it's a fastball that may be hittable and then it goes below the zone. So I, I think that's what any pitcher tries to do is make all of his pitches look the same for as long as possible. And then one goes straight and one veers off the path. So I don't think you have to be a hitter to really know how to use your stuff, but you you definitely have to think about it. The good thing about, I got to be honest, the good thing about this organization is we have Yaz. Grindall can, he calls to our strengths. He calls the pitches to our strengths. And in my case, I can't speak for everybody, but I really don't have to do too much thinking. So if I shake off a pitch, it's because maybe for whatever reason, I don't think I can locate that pitch at that time or something along those lines. It's not because I don't think that pitch is good against that hitter because I trust Yaz. I mean, he's been catching the whole game. He knows who we are and 
he's good at what he does. So he makes the job easy for me. So we can look at the stats and you mentioned that you're working on a slider. Well, your four-seamer already gets a slider-like swing and miss rate, which is pretty incredible because usually the fastball isn't so much a swing and miss pitch as it is something that sets up other pitches. But for you, it is that. And you look at the movement and it's, you know, it moves more than almost anyone's fastball, particularly in the vertical direction. And it's a, a pretty good spin pitch and it has all these movement and spin characteristics that really set it apart. And, you know, you get good velocity, but not off the charts. It's, you know, 92, 93 gets up into the mid nineties, which is, I'd say a little bit above average for, for a lefty. But if you just looked at the velocity alone, you wouldn't be blown away figuratively speaking. So what is it about the pitch? Is it something in the way you hold it? Is it your grip? Is it your arm speed? Is it something you can't even identify? Why does it work so well? Well, I've noticed that I've got cues in my delivery and I can see what works and what doesn't. I, I see the ball either ride and basically defy gravity or if I if I screw that up, then I'd see it fall. And I, I learned that obviously the riding and defying gravity is what I want to do. So I guess I've, I mean, I definitely worked on spinning the baseball. I try to spin it straight backwards, you know, make the pitch as straight as I possibly can, you know to not fall at all. And I just, I focus on getting on top of it and pulling on the backside as hard as I possibly can. Sometimes I guess I put more energy into the spin than I do throwing it forward. And it may, you know, be 88, 89, maybe 90 miles an hour. And I still get a swing through. It's not, obviously I didn't blow them away. I just missed the bat. So I think as long as I focus on putting effort into the spin, velocity for me really doesn't matter. It probably helps, but it doesn't matter. So I've worked on it. I've worked on the spin, I mean, but as far as velocity goes, which is what lights people's eyes up and, you know, everybody wants to see Chapman throw 105 miles an hour, Mm -hmm. but I guess my, my pitch isn't as exciting as that, but there's a, there's a method to it. There's a method to the madness. Yeah. Well, the whiff per swing rate, Aroldis Chapman, 33.3% on his fastball and Grant Dayton, very next guy at 33.0%. So maybe it's... There are people who are getting into uh, spin rate as much as velocity now. So don't say mm-hmm. it's not exciting. Yeah. Maybe it's 10 miles well, per hour slower sometimes, but it has basically the same effect. You know, it's funny. I've I've gotten on the internet because I, you know, after everybody starts talking, it's always a mistake. Rate, well, I, I can't <laughs> ignore that. So I was I was wondering what the number is, and I haven't seen anything that shows me that it's really high. Even though I feel like that's what I'm trying to do. That's my goal in my fastball is to spin it. Mm-hmm. it doesn't I think the MLB app? Uh, mm-hmm. I forget what it's called. I think it's just MLB app says that my spin rate is like 2300 or something like that like not mm-hmm. you know not that much above major league average so i don't really know i don't know yeah i was looking at that too the yeah it, it's above average but it's not near the top but the movement is and the results are so i don't know why yeah. it moves so much without spinning so much i, I guess you know the harder you throw the more it spins, usually that's kind of correlated, I think. So maybe that has something yeah. to do with it. But whatever it is, it's it's working. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess so. 
So you brought up Yasmati Grandal and you, you know, threw to him and he's the book on him is he's one of the best pitch framers in baseball. And you also threw at different yeah. points last year to AJ Ellis and Carlos Ruiz, who have reputations as of being really good handlers of pitchers. So even though you're throwing your fastball most of the time and you're not turning over a lineup three times, how much does the rapport between yourself and the catcher influence what you're gonna do? I gotta be honest, whatever they throw down <laughs> 99.9% of the time, I'm throwing that pitch. Uh-huh. I don't see a need to shake off those guys. I mean, they do throw a lot of fastballs down, and I'm on board with that. But if they throw down off-speed, I, I think that, you know, maybe it's time to mix an off-speed pitch in there. So I trust them. I trust them completely. I think that, you know, you mentioned Ruiz and Ellis, and they've been around the game a long time. And Yaz, he does a great job. Like, there's no need to question them. In my opinion, I think they they did an unbelievable job, and I'm glad we still have Yaz because I couldn't imagine throwing anybody else. Like you said, he frames or just gets the strikes, you know. I mean, I've thrown at the bottom of the zone sometimes, and it's ball, and I've thrown up at the top of the zone, and they call it a ball. But with Yaz, it's like, you know, he's still in strikes out there, and He'll fool everybody. He fools he fools the crowd. He fools everybody watching. He fools the umpire. He fools the batter. And then you look at the uh, what do they call it, the K zone or whatever, and it was outside. Mm. <laughs> so he he he's good and he's fun to throw to. All right. So there's a lot of hurry up and wait in a major league bullpen. Yeah. You're you're only entering I don't know forty percent of the games, throwing one inning at a time. So there's a lot of downtime, and the Dodgers have going into spring training, uh, probably at least six guys who could grab a spot in the rotation. The rest will go to the bullpen or to the minors. Just from a standpoint of who you want to spend all that time with out in the bullpen when you're waiting for your turn to, to come in, who are you sort of rooting for to to join you in the bullpen? From the starters standpoint? Yeah, from a standpoint of who'd be the coolest to hang out with. <laughs> oh, that's tough to say because if they're in the bullpen, they didn't make the starting rotation. So, uh... <laughs> You know, Stripling is a fun guy to be around. He kind of takes the edge off because he's just, he's always got something funny to say. And, uh, you know, he calms us down. I feel the same way about uh, Alex Wood. He was in the bullpen with us in the uh, playoffs last year. And I, I really enjoyed being around him. Even Urias. Urias will probably make the rotation, but he doesn't talk too much because, you know, his, his language, well, he he talks in Spanish, so we can't understand most of the words he says, but he's fun to be around. Just He's young and he's so talented. It's, you know, not from a verbal standpoint, but just watching him, he carries himself like he's, you know, a seasoned veteran who's been in the game for a while. So I like being around him as well. But you're right. The battle for starting pitching this year is, is going to be fun to watch. We are deep in starting pitchers. So that's a tough spot to be in if your name isn't Kershaw. <laughs> yeah, that was very diplomatic of you. <laughs> yeah, well, I try to keep it diplomatic. You know, I, there's not a guy around that I'm not rooting for, but there's only five spots. So uh, it's going to be tough to watch guys that could be in the major leagues not be in the major leagues because they're with the Dodgers. But I'm glad that they'll be around us at least. Well, you pitch in a pretty unconventional way. Among guys with at least 20 innings in the majors last year, you had the 10th lowest ground ball rate, which sounds like it might be a bad thing. Aiming high in the zone maybe makes you more susceptible to the home run. But on the other hand, you're getting those strikeouts, you're getting pop-ups, you're inducing weak contact. Among pitchers with at least 40 batted balls tracked last season, you had the lowest exit velocity allowed, 83.8 miles per hour. So it's going to be fun for us to see you for a full season. So you can find Grant Dayton in the Dodgers bullpen, of 
course, you can also find him on Twitter at Grant Dayton. And you've given me something else to be excited about. I'm I'm psyched about this slider because if this turns into a <laughs> this turns into a good pitch too, then there will be no stopping you because the fastball alone is a pretty potent weapon. So good luck putting the, well, the finishing it. touches on that. And thanks for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it. We'll see if the slider shows up this year. It may never even get thrown. Who knows? But we'll see. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Grant. Thank you very much. All right. We'll be right back with hitting instructor Doug Latta. So last week at Fangraphs, Travis Sawchick wrote an article called Can More MLB Hitters Get Off the Ground? about the efforts of some hitters to adopt more of an uppercut fly ball oriented swing. You wouldn't think this would be such a tough sell in that fly balls are generally more valuable, do more damage than balls on the ground, and especially these days when balls are flying out of the park. But it seems that it is. There is some ground ball swing bias. And so one of the coaches who is helping to change that is named Doug Latta, and he works at a facility called The Ball Yard in Northridge, California, and he's joining us now. Hey, Doug. Hello, Ben. Thanks for having me on the show. Happy to. So I'm very curious about how an independent instructor gets involved with pro players and even with major leaguers, because we've heard about a number of hitting transformations, and some of them have been your clients like Justin Turner, and others would be, you know, Josh Donaldson or Matt Joyce. And we hear about these hitting coaches who are not employed by teams. And I'm always curious about how the connections come about and how you work with the team personnel. So can you give us the rundown on that? Having the skill set, the knowledge and experience and aptitude to instruct, obviously, is a development over time. You don't just open the door, walk in and say, I am now a major league hitting instructor or a hitting instructor at all. My unique set of variables led me into a, a really high level place of development early on, being around good hitters, opening a facility, having even more hitters come in. A good friend of mine was an instructor that brought in a high level pro and major league clientele. And that offered me 18 years ago an opportunity to sit and discuss hitting with major league players and get their feedback in an environment where it's a discussion, where you could sit next to each other and, and talk about what's going on. And then the development of that skill set over the course of years. And then it's just the opportunity to meet players and express an interest to work with you or see what you bring to the table and move forward from there. Do you generally approach uh, a big league client or does someone like Justin Turner say, hey, I heard about you. Can we meet? And, you know, and you sort of talk about lessons from there. Generally, it's my side has always been. I'm going to be contacted by the player. And that's usually obviously the easiest way because that comes from a referral from a fellow player who likes what we do or likes what uh, we work on and shares that with a fellow player and kind of creates a credibility from the start. And then it's discussion of where the new player is, what they want to do, where their struggles are and uh, what gains can be made. And is there any wariness on the part of the teams? You know, obviously these players are worth many millions of dollars to the teams, and I'm sure they 
want to be assured that their players are in good hands. So how do they assure themselves that their players are being taken care of by someone who knows what he's doing? Well, the club really doesn't exert control over the players, what they do in their offseason or who they talk to Mm -hmm. directly. And you can obviously understand there is some concern because you don't want to see your player's skill set deteriorate. But on the flip side, when a player seeks you out, searches out for some new input, it probably indicates that they're not getting what they believe they need within the conventional framework of the organization. So as you can see from the business point of being in baseball in the organization, they certainly should be concerned to a certain degree who their players are dealing with and what their players are working on. But on the flip side, you also have the players are responsible for their career. And sometimes working from the organization, some of the personnel within the organization may not meet all the needs of the player. So is there a specific kind of player you feel like, you know, we'll get into the approach that you teach in a minute, but do you feel like there's a specific kind of player who's you know, most susceptible to learning or whose skill set fits best with what you teach? Because, you know, you look at Marlon Bird or Justin Turner or guys that worked with other coaches like Donaldson, they're sort of, they're not like kids right out of college. They're established pros who sort of revolutionize their their swing mid-career and they share a certain body type. Is there something that, that you look for or skills or physical attributes that you look to exploit? Uh, when you're uh, teaching your clients? No, I don't look to the type of player I get. That's a player selection to find me. And again, it's not a specific type of player. I think who's attracted to a new environment are players that aren't happy with their performance, maybe struggling and want to take steps to take their game to a different level. So again, you see kind of a veteran mentality that looks outside the norm to see if they can find something different. You'll also find that there's a lot of hitters that are passionate about what they do and just consumed by it and are always looking for something new and seeing if there's something out there that might resonate in them, a thought, a move, and take their game to a different level. I guess that takes some conviction and and some independent thinking on the part of the player, because if you are teaching something different from what he's been taught by his organization and he embraces that style and then he goes right back to his old team, his old instructors, and they're still advocating something different, then he sort of has to stick to his guns, right? If he believes that the new way is working for him. Yes, it can be a point of light contention. And I mean light because a a veteran player is going to have his routine and it's going to do the things that uh, works for him. And what people realize is every player that's at the major league level, particularly, you know, your vets, your five, six year guys have kind of gone through the trenches and have established a pattern and uh, concepts that they hold on to. And hitting coaches don't necessarily just jump in there and start changing things at the major league level. They're there to augment and work with the player. But there are times when you know there may be a recommendation for a mechanical change or doing something different, which is when you know a hitter might make a change that may not be in their best interest. It may work against them. And again, you realize it's a very personal thing. And even in communication, people can talk about 
making this move, uh, making this swing, but the actual physical way to do it or how it's you see it is a lot different than just the words. So let's talk about what you teach, because you know you wouldn't be talking to us or Travis Sawchuk from Fangraphs if what you were doing wasn't innovative in a, in a certain way. So how what do you teach Justin Turner when he comes in? Gosh, I, I don't want to say it's innovative because I think it's pretty simple. I think we're looking at more how the natural movements of the body, you know, and then apply that to how we're going to best hit a baseball, something traveling at us, not, you know, sitting on a tee. I don't think we've invented anything and I sure don't want to take credit for inventing anything. I think it's just looking at a concept and seeing there's a disconnect between what players get taught. And that's from the major leagues all the way down to that entry-level player at five or six years old and what Travis called conventional wisdom. And what we do is just has taken point saying, this is how we can clean up and try to make the swing more efficient and have a longer path through the ball, which automatically changes a whole dynamic uh, when you're at the plate. So one of the results of this is getting the ball in the air more as opposed to what they call chopping wood and trying to get backspin on the ball. And I, you know, I remember playing little league when I was six or seven years old and they're saying, don't uppercut, you're going to just pop it up. You know, you want to hit line drives, hit the ball hard and low. And thinking back on it, the idea of putting backspin on a pitched baseball just seems ridiculous to me. Like this isn't tennis. You're not, you don't have all that surface area to work with. It's hard enough just to even get the back on the ball. So where this idea of putting backspin on the ball even come from? I'm not sure, but I remember people trying to explain that you actually hit down on this ball coming at you to create this much backspin that now the ball goes in the air. And I think the whole idea of hitting down on the ball to create backspin is a fallacy within itself. And if you recall from your days of playing when you were in a BP situation, someone said, okay, we're hit and runs you know, hit down on the ball. We want to get that ball on the ground. Well, you hit down on the ball to get the ball on the ground. And then in the next breath, someone's telling you, okay, now hit down on the ball and hit it out of the ballpark. <laughs> you see the disconnect. Mm -hmm. So it's conceptually, I think what went wrong was somewhere somebody talked about words and saying, this is what I feel, this is what I do, and you should try that. And based upon the delivery of that, you wound up with this concept of, you know, hit down on the ball. The simplistic way to think, why do people want to hit down on the ball and hit ground balls? The only thing I can think is that the kind of little league mentality or coach mentality of, okay, if I hit the ball on the ground, a fielder has to first get to the ball, second, field the ball, throw the ball accurately to first, and then the first baseman has to receive it. So there's a lot more going on there than there is if a kid has to go track down a fly ball. I've had people actually offer that as a uh, defense for saying hit the ball on the ground. But the other thing on that vein, if I may, is a lot of people believe, and commonly when you have somebody that can run really well, well, they need to hit the ball on the ground so they can run and beat out the play and get more hits yeah, that that's way. That's the, the Willie Mays Hayes in major mm -hmm. league approach. Absolutely. But when we think about it, and conversation actually came up years ago with Gary Adams, who was a fabulous coach at uh, UCLA, and we were talking about hitting mechanics and here's Gary in his mid sixties and, you know, already had had a very successful career was discussing, you know, how would you treat different hitters? And Dave Roberts name came up and he said, what would you do there? And I said, teach him to hit. The reason is because the downward swing through the zone limits my ability to hit pitches. 
and I have to make decisions and I'm forced in a position where I may not be able to get a good swing off at balls in the zone. But the concept of the quote unquote uppercut swing and the fly ball swing isn't that we're going to hit every ball in the air, but we're going to actually have more contact through a bigger zone and be able to handle velocity changes better. Even the, if you think about you know, what a bat does to a ball in a ground ball, if you stop an uppercut swing down at the bottom of the plane, and let's say that's where your contact point was to create a ground ball, is that ground ball hit better than a ball that's being swung down on with the chop wood style? So you can kind of see what I'm saying is that we still are going to hit ground balls. And believe me, no matter what your swing is, you're still going to miss balls and you're still going to miss hit balls. That's just the game. But the quality of actual effective contact does go up with a better swing. And there's a myriad of other things that happen, including timing changes, visual, and even confidence uh, all change when, you know, you've got a, a higher comfort level and are obviously seeing better results. So there's no trade-off necessarily here then. It's not as if you're saying sell out for power and, you know, swing for the fences and yes, you'll you'll miss more, but when you hit the ball, you'll hit it harder. You're not saying that. You're yeah, saying this is not that, the Phil Plantier swing that, that you're <laughs> right, teaching. This is just this is just all around more effective, you you believe. It's not necessarily leading to a, a more all or nothing approach or anything like that. Absolutely. And I think it gets sometimes mischaracterized when People look at it and say, oh, you know, you're going to strike out a lot more. You're looking at trying to create more coverage, which today more than ever is an absolute necessity for hitters at all levels. One of the things we look at is a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on strikeouts. Well, I think that needs to change. Pitching is now so much farther ahead. We're, we're in triple digits. Not only do you see a lot of major leaguers breaking that century mark, you've got a lot of prospects. For instance, we're on the West Coast here in California. We have a great young player named Hunter Green playing for Notre Dame High School. This kid's already hitting 96, 98. So just imagine who he's going to be when he's 20, 21, 22 and working at the game every day. So you're looking at a lot more velocity. And today's hitters not only deal with the velocity, but a lot of late movement. So the game is changing. And we have to kind of seek more efficiency. So that brings up something that's been a hobby horse of mine for a while, which is, you know, strikeout rates go up every year and baseball is increasingly becoming a sport where it's a confrontation with the pitcher and the batter and fewer balls get put in play. And you could say that that hurts baseball as an entertainment product. So, you know, obviously the entertainment value of the sport is not your job, but, you know, one way to get around that is to make more contact. So just the better swing path staying in the zone, is that a way to sort of get around the, the rising strikeout rates? I think you're still going to see strikeout rates stay high because you're looking at a complete difference in the game. Just the pitchers are that good? Well, when you start covering a 102 mile an hour fastball versus a, let's say an 89 mile an hour slide piece, hey, it changes the whole game a little bit. A true fan understands that that challenge of a pitcher and a hitter that's unique in sports. And I have seen great at-bats end up in a strikeout. You know, the proverbial 10, 12 pitch at-bat, where that's a great at-bat against a great pitcher. So strikeouts, I think, have to be revisited just based on what we're doing now from athletic performance standpoint. Are they going to go down to the old, it's got to be a 10% strikeout to 20% walk ratio? I don't think so. I don't think those numbers apply today. And again, on the other end of the spectrum, Fans seem to love home runs, don't they? But clutch doubles, doubles make a big difference in a game too. Mm -hmm. And nothing's better than a great pinch hit. And when you think about it, 
Now, Luis Gonzalez won a World Series with a job off the bat, off Mariano Rivera. Mm -hmm. So it's still going to come down to not necessarily what the statistics say, but what does happen on the field. And is there science behind this? In other words, it sounds intuitive, or at least it sounds like it would sound intuitive if you hadn't been taught something else first. But I know that Dr. Alan Nathan has done some studies that show that spin doesn't have that much effect on batted ball distance. Is there anything that you are able to show a skeptic and point to and say, this is validated by this measurement or this model? Well, as you said, you've got Nathan. There's a lot of people over the years that have done or attempt to do scientific evaluation of you know different facets of hitting and, and of that pitching-hitting relationship. I think, frankly, no matter what science is out there, if you've got somebody who's a skeptic, you're probably not going to convince them no matter and no matter what you lay on the table for them some people are are heavily rooted in a belief system they're heavily rooted in you know what they think they know and they're convinced that works for them you've got coaches say this is how i've taught for 40 years and this is how it is they're not going to be interested in change no matter what science you put in no matter what you show them i've seen that i think you're going to see more science come out on it but the proof in the pudding is going to be watching hitters make adjustments and have success. Performance is going to dictate what changes people and what changes the game over time. And what percentage of professional instructors would you say are not converts? Uh, you know, I'm sure at the at the amateur level, at the little league level, it's still pervasive to have people saying level swing or chop down on the ball, but is that still the majority thinking even inside the game at the highest levels or has that begun to change? I think it's changing. And when you start thinking, and that's what it takes, it doesn't take people going out there and say, do X, Y, Z. It's just the thought of, okay, everybody's talking about these fly ball rates and we're seeing some success with these hitters. I think that's enough to start getting thought going. And that means people will start investigating it. And by definition, the forward thinking ones will adapt and make those changes over time. It's going to take a lot of time when you think about professional instruction up and down the ladder. And we're just going to talk about Major League Baseball at this point, because how many individuals are out there with that title that are responsible to instruct hitters or support hitters? They all don't have the same thoughts, ideas, and methodologies now. And you've got people coming from a wealth of different backgrounds, not only from baseball, but even culturally. So there's a lot of different ideas out there already. And we once again think about there's a lot of people out there doing things that they're convinced work for whatever reason, whether it does or not, that's what they teach. So that's a really, by itself, a very big atmosphere to deal with. And when you start going into the collegiate level and the high school level and the grassroots level of the game, wow, you can see the numbers get pretty incredible. My guess would be that you're going to probably see a better change at the professional level based upon performance. It's going to take a while for the collegiate level to change and for the high school level and most certainly the amateur level, because there are just so many people out there that are going to rely on either what they were taught, what they think they know, or what they find on the internet. And if you've ever gone through the internet, there's a lot of people out there teaching things that are similar to what we've talked about, you know, swing down on the balls, stay back and spin. There's a ton of that out there. And I'm sure that the earlier you catch someone or the less ingrained the old habits are, the easier it is for 
you to rebuild their swing. So when someone like Justin Turner comes to you, who's made the major leagues and has been swinging a certain way for many years, how much of an investment is it to embrace your style? How long does it take? Well, as I said, by the time I meet somebody, they're pretty much already sold on the concepts. The change would be where that hitter is and what they need to do because it's really, it's about the individual hitter. There's not a template cookie cutter. It's about getting to a point where you find out what that hitter can do, what works for a Justin Turner. And every hitter will have their own personality and develop it, or shall we say redevelop it. And it's just a, a function of that commitment for someone like JT is built in. JT leaves no stone unturned in any aspect of the game. So when he goes after nutrition, when he goes after strength and training, He's going all in, but he's also going from a point that he's also relying on people that he's already researched. He's already bringing things to the table. So when you take a, a professional hitter, remember, it's also it's an incredible responsibility, but it's also an advantage because I'm working with already a great athlete. That just means you're probably more body aware. In most cases, you understand. So changes aren't as difficult as it might be for an amateur. And another thing with a major league hitter is that they understand, you know, what the work means because people don't appreciate that it's a seven and a half month season. It's a lot of swings. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of grind. So being able to sit with the major league said, we need to come up with a consistent, repeatable swing that's going to survive seven and a half months of this grind. And it's going to be able to trot up there every day and have the at-bats you want. That sort of goes into something that, you know, we talked to Craig Breslow uh, last week and he's working with a, a new arm slot and the idea of changing those habits and, you know, creating new habits is something that's kind of fascinating to me because does it just take that level of body awareness to just scrap something that you've been that is now like a reflex? It's, you know, muscle memory and just build up something that's different. How do you teach that? Well, we call that patterning and what you'll find for every hitter that's different the inside motivation is pretty simple. The first time they take a few swings and they see better results and they can quantify that result by saying, hey, I know how that's going to work. That provides that impetus to keep moving forward and then making the little adjustments as needed. The good thing is relative to a pitcher, when you change a pitcher's arm slot, you have to take a lot of consideration. In fact, this pitcher may have been throwing that way. His body's accustomed to high stress with mechanic A. So the minute you try to change a mechanic B, there could be other stressors now on the system. Well, the good thing about a hitter is what we do, I think, actually takes a lot of stress off the system because we look at trying to be, we don't want to engage muscles. We don't want to overswing. We don't want to put a lot of torque in trying to create a body move that is complements a swing move. We want to actually get the body to work a little bit more efficiently. It always amazes me. I think I said this on an earlier episode when we had Brian Bannister and John Baker on, but it always amazes me that people can make the major leagues while doing something suboptimal. You know, I always imagine that if you're going to make the majors, you must be maxing out your talent in every way because there are so many incredible baseball players. If you're not making the most of your abilities, then the next guy will and he'll overtake you. But that seems not to be the case that there are hitters who make it to that level and then find an even higher level once they change something mechanically. So when you're watching a game, how many guys are you looking at swings and thinking, I could fix that. He could be better. I watch every hitter. I watch them when they're on deck. I, I watch them 
at the game. I watch them in BP, not so much as a fix on them, but a recognition, validating what I see, what would I do different, what would make this better. Just as basically, it's almost like mental practice. It's going through it. But again, there are hitters that are phenomenal hitters. It's a tribute to the athleticism needed to hit a baseball. There are certain people that just can get the bat on the ball, no matter what. Uh, what I've kind of postulated is there's a point when something changes, something goes a little bit off track, and now suddenly it's a train wreck. We've seen that happen where you see a player who's had an outstanding early career, and suddenly it's like the floor drops out. There has to be an explanation for that because injury aside, it's the same athlete. But on the other case, you just have a skill set on certain athletes that are just designed for baseball. You know, that includes obviously the mental side of it, being able to weather the the ups and downs of being a baseball hitter, because we're going to fail a lot. As an example, I, I hear a lot of people take shots at Hunter Pence, and Hunter Pence is a great athlete. What do you do with Hunter Pence? You get out of the way and let Hunter Pence be Hunter Pence. If, <laughs> if Hunter Pence comes up to you and say, hey, I've got this, then you sit there and try to work through that. And that's what a hitting coach at the major league level does. They're probably not going to try and put a wholesale change on anybody. That's really not advisable, but maybe we make a day-to-day correction working together with a hitter in order to facilitate performance. A lot, you know, Hunter Pence looks like kind of a unique swing, shall we say, <laughs> but he gets it done. And what I've heard from everybody is like, you know, you can't have a better guy on your team. Mm-hmm. And lastly, we've seen over the last season and a half or so a, a huge uptick in home run rate that happened really suddenly, and people have come up with all kinds of theories. I've wondered whether it might be the ball. Often you hear people say, well, hitters are doing what you advocate more often, and they're looking at their launch angles, and they're trying to optimize their swings, and maybe that is resulting in the uptick in home runs. And certainly there are individual cases where that seems to be what happened, but do you see any larger scale evidence that enough hitters are embracing this all at once to produce that sort of notable change? Well, if I take baseball historically, there seems to be patterns where there's an increase in power and then suddenly either pitching comes back into play or something happens to the ball, whatever the case may be, maybe the strike zone changes. So we have seen patterns of power years and then less power years. But I'd like to believe at this point, I think we are seeing a change towards that phenomena of swing change for one reason being is that the swing is actually smoother and easier than trying to grind out a spin flat bat through the zone kind of mentality. And the other thing we have to think about is when you were talking the change in velocity, well, get a good swing on a pitch going 98 miles an hour, you're going to have something going on there that's going to change ball flight too. All right. Any other breakouts you can tip us off to? Anyone you've been working with this winter, we should tell our listeners to draft higher in their fantasy leagues this year. I'm not at liberty to say, but uh, (laughs) I would just advocate for those of you that have children in uh, baseball or softball, give it a try. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you can find Doug on Twitter at Latta Doug. That's L-A-T-T-A. And if you want to make a pilgrimage to the ball yard and rebuild your swing, You can find it in Northridge, California and online at ballyard.net. Doug, thank you. Thank you so much, Ben. All right. So that is it for this week's episode. Until next time, swing up and aim high in the zone, but only if you have a high spin fastball. (laughs) Yeah, it's not going to fit on a t-shirt. Yeah, probably not. All right. We'll talk to you next week.